Physics World. Hello, welcome to the Physics World weekly podcast. I'm James Dacey, a science journalist based in Madrid, Spain. And this is the second episode in a two-part series about the climate crisis. Next week is crunch time at the COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow, as negotiators seek breakthroughs over key issues such as climate financing and the legal mechanisms for ensuring that governments actually do what they say they're going to do. In last week's episode, I looked at how climate scientists are helping to identify risks to global health and how they are improving the underlying climate models. Today I'm focused on climate solutions and how physical scientists are contributing. Later in the episode, I'll look at the challenges of cutting the carbon footprint of cities and consider whether it's a good idea to lock vast amounts of CO2 beneath the ground. But to start, let's take a look at renewable energy and energy storage. Here's Dan Cameron from the University of California, Berkeley in the US, who has positions in the Energy and Resources Group, the Goldman School of Public Policy and the Department of Nuclear Engineering. I began by asking Cameron if he was optimistic about the speed at which we're moving away from fossil fuels. Well, I've actually been never more optimistic than I am today about our ability to get this done. Um, there's a whole mix of science that we need, of course, um, engineering, um, economics and policy. But we finally have a combination of a sufficient base on the scientific side and the right political statements from around the world with the United States under President Biden having now said that 2035 is our uh, target date for a, um, a decarbonized energy sector. Japan and South Korea have said similar things. China has now set a goal for 2060. The EU has always been aggressive on this. Um, but it's really that intersection of what the science and engineering can deliver and these political comments that set us up to, to act. Now, whether we follow through is the real challenge. And that's been the place where the cops have had their stumblings to put it mildly but we are we are prepped to do this at long last and so that's really why i feel like we have the chance now to to absolutely turn the corner on climate we're committed to some climate change no matter what but we are we were tooled up to make a difference if we choose to really act so just to look at some of the renewable technologies so to perhaps solar and wind two of the main ones um, what do you see as some of the technical challenges in the next, say, 10 years um, that, that can make those technologies even better than they are at the moment? Well, not only do we expect continuing evolution, progress, innovation in both spaces, but it's really the systems level that's going to be required to make the market share of solar and wind grow even more than they are now, grow faster than they're doing now. Um, and that's because... From almost everywhere on the planet, solar and wind are now the cheapest forms of energy. And that's before you add in carbon prices and various uh, adjusters that make sense. But just on its raw merits, for many places, it's now cheaper to build a new solar or wind plant than to simply operate an existing fossil fuel plant. And that's a threshold that we just passed earlier this year. The big challenge, though, for these technologies is the smart systems integration. We need to couple solar and wind with energy storage. 
we need to work on how we're going to integrate this in not just at the big power plant level, so a big solar or wind plant offshore or in the desert, but we need to do a much better job of integrating these into buildings, to small light industry, to really make renewable and solar, and I would say geothermal and offshore wind, much more just part of the system that we deploy at the first blush, not the one that we have to kind of carve out special niches for. And you mentioned the energy storage. So for intermittent forms of renewables, I guess that, that is something that is really important. And in, in that field, in terms of batteries, what, what do you see as some of the most exciting innovations that are coming in the next few years? Thankfully, many of the innovations in energy storage are actually already with us at early stages. It's really a question now of not so much the cost, but of moving beyond short-term storage, which lithium-ion is the dominant player in that market right now. But now we're seeing the evolution of flow batteries, which have longer capacities. Hydrogen is now being ramped into the system, in particular, likely to come from large-scale offshore wind, where you can sell electricity when the market price is high and make hydrogen for later use. And then we have the novel technologies. There's new companies like Energy Vault that literally um, raise concrete blocks up on scaffolds and then bring that back down when <laughs> power. There's the opportunities for high temperature fuel cells, solid oxide fuel cells, for example, allow you to make electricity, but because they operate at 400 degrees C, also to make process heat, which is the one thing you cannot get readily from solar and wind um, because they don't have the, the thermal built in. But we're now seeing large scale molten salt um, storage plants in the California desert, in Morocco and Spain. So it's really that coupling them together and thinking about the low carbon energy sources along with the right amount of storage as the next evolution in a decarbonized system overall. Okay, and, and looking globally, it'd be good to consider um, nuclear as well and get, get your, your thoughts on that. Because it, it seems to be a real mixed bag of opinions, really. There's, there's countries like Germany, which have been phasing it out, but then there's other lots of green advocates that say it's an essential part of a, of a mix. Um, so I guess, where, where do you stand on that? And also what... What are the things which maybe need to change to change the image of nuclear? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, this, this, is, this is an hour-long show by itself, <laughs> and there's no easy answers on nuclear. So as a professor of nuclear engineering, I'm really rooting for the nuclear technologies to play a role. The challenges are very large. The, the most recent nuclear plants built basically everywhere in the world, with the exception of China, have been so much more expensive than comparable amounts of not just renewables, but renewables plus storage. So current conventional nuclear, we call generation three or generation three plus, um, those plants have a long way to go to be good partners with the evolving suite of renewables. And the problem is that the time scale is now so short. We need to decarbonize in the next generation or less. And that means that if you look at the capacity to build new nuclear plants with the companies in Europe, um, United States, and China, uh, South Korea, 
for nuclear to just replace the plants that need to retire over the next generation will be a challenge, let alone building out larger new market share. Now, many of the world's billionaires are investors or owners of a whole new generation of small modular nuclear plants um, that they are banking on that small modularity, meaning they can progress down the same technological learning curve that solar and wind have been celebrated to having been done. Those plants are all untested, and the first ones will only be installed as pilot facilities later this decade. So for, for those nuclear plants to play a big role in this is going to be a challenge. The other new player on the scene in the nuclear side is the one that people scoffed at for decades, and that's fusion. But in the last month, we've seen major advances in fusion from both the laser-based system, the NIF, the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in California, and Commonwealth Fusion at MIT um, hit the 20 Tesla magnet level, and that allows their technology to now have literally every single piece they need tested in real conditions. Now the question is to build it out. And so MIT has made this remarkably aggressive statement of by 2024 or 25, <laughs> literally just around the corner, hmm. they think they'll have an opera, you know, they'll think they'll have a, a pilot facility. So nuclear that was always 30 years away for 30 years is suddenly on the horizon but it will still face the same thing I said for, uh, for, for nuclear fission. And that is, we don't have any operating plans today. For them to be a player in this one generation time is going to be just a remarkable challenge. I'm going to stick to my, my sort of tagline statement that I make in talks all the time. And that is, I still think that by 2070 or so, the world will be dominated by fusion power. Just half of it will be 93 million miles away, solar, um, and the other half will be terrestrial. But I think we are looking at that 2060, 2070 point to think about large-scale fusion, not only for terrestrial power, but potentially for solar system uh, travel as well. Physics World. When I think about the carbon footprint of my home, I think about things like the heating or whether I've left the lights on for no reason or how efficient is the washing machine and the other appliances. Basically things to do with the running of the building. But what's a lot harder to know is the carbon footprint of building materials throughout their entire life cycles because that requires loads of data about supply chains and logistics that haven't been tracked or were never recorded in the first place. But how can we expect to design greener infrastructure if we don't even know how much carbon is involved at the moment? That's the challenge being tackled by Arpad Horvath, an environmental engineer, also at the University of California, Berkeley. Infrastructure broadly defined uses all kinds of materials, actually pretty much every material one can think of, uh, whether they come from minerals or agricultural based, you know, forestry based or, uh, or, or purely laboratory based, we use it infrastructure. And so the question is how much, where do they come from? What does manufacturing look like? What do the, the, the logistics and the supply chains look like? Operationally, it's easier to track things because in the operational phase, we're mostly using energy and energy is 
quite easy to track because there is a market for it. We pay for it. Uh, but once something has been built, we lose hindsight. We lose the often the designs. We lose the uh, the descriptions of how a facility came about, and so we lose the amounts of materials that that were uh, that were used. And so, if we want to do something with, with a piece of infrastructure in the future, it becomes very difficult because we don't know what's in it. And this is true even in the rich world, let alone in the poorer world. I have been in situations where the company has asked if um, we can make their buildings greener. And then the first uh, question, of course, from me is, well, what does the building look like? You know, what's the shape? How much materials, which kind of materials went into the building? And they say, well, you know, we we, uh, opened this building three years ago, but we have no record of what's actually (laughs) in it. So go ahead, walk around and make your own estimate. So I think um, last time we we spoke is that it was way back in 2015, and I I asked you about the concept of smart cities because um, especially around that time it was becoming you know it was a real buzzword. It was um, there was lots of hype around this idea, and I suppose there's different images of it. You know, but one is a city with lots and lots of data, and and the city is kind of responding to this data. But then I know. There has also been some criticism of the concept as being a, you know, pure marketing. It's often just thrown around by um, wealthy cities that maybe don't actually need the investment so much. Um, so, I mean, what do you understand now in 2021 by the term smart city? And do you think it's, is it a useful term still? There are no smart and dumb cities. There are smart and less smart decisions. And I think if we focused more on what needs to be done rather than labeling entire cities or attempts uh, to make decisions in cities, it would be more useful. I think that the underlying uh, strive here is to provide a data-rich environment. And if we have that, then we have evidence-based decision-making. Then we have data-based uh, uh, decision-making and follow-up about our investments. So uh, I think a better way to characterize the smart cities movement is uh, that it is a movement that uses data in ways that it hasn't before and uses data um, um, collection, uh, data recording, and data management in novel ways. Looking to the future, I mean, there's more and more urbanization and we're going to need more and more infrastructure for um, renewable energies um, across the world. And there is quite a clear understanding that concrete and steel have a large carbon equivalent embedded in those materials as they're produced at scale now. Are there any promising developments in terms of alternative processes for producing those materials or or different types of materials um, that can actually be scaled up and you know deployed over significant areas. There are promising developments. Uh, there have always been, and there will always be. But uh, it it's it's the implementation where we often fail. So there are great ideas at the laboratory scale, but when uh, we we face the scale at which these ha- have to be deployed, then we often lose feasibility. 
Mm-hmm. And so the promising developments exist both for brand new materials, but also for the materials you mentioned, concrete and steel. So we can do uh, good things, promising energy efficiency, emissions efficiency actions about concrete and steel. So the notion very often is that we have to forget about concrete and steel. And since we're talking about tens of billions of tons used here, that's just very unrealistic. So we have to work with these materials because they're very often irreplaceable in applications, but we have to work with them such that we make their manufacturing and their supply chains greener. So rather than just pushing the invention of new materials and and the, the wide scale introduction and implementation of these materials, let's work with the current manufacturing and make that greener. It won't get us to a uh, sustainable, um, no problem, worry-free future about these materials. It won't, but it will help us achieve significant reductions. And then there is the uh, suite of alternative materials. There is more and more research and belief that going with biogenic materials is the way to go. So replacing Mm -hmm. uh, the sort of um, mineral-based and petroleum-based materials with biologically-based materials, primarily Uh, wood products, and plant products. This is an example where we need to think about infrastructure at the really very, very detailed level, very disaggregated level, and take a look at the opportunities. We can replace individual insulation materials. We can replace individual members. Uh, You know, a, a wooden door instead of a metal door or a plastic door. We have to start there. But Biogenic materials, primarily uh, mass uh, wood, uh, is is becoming a real opportunity. So the manufacturing industry has caught up with this idea. And now we're thinking about mid-rise, even high-rise buildings being built entirely out of wood. From speaking with environmental researchers for this podcast... Two messages have come through loud and clear, and they reveal the seriousness of the situation. The first is that we need to take climate action now. The second is that deep changes take time, innovation takes time, and it takes time for societies to adapt. So if we're realistic and accept these two things as facts of life, then alongside cutting greenhouse emissions, we might need to find other ways of reducing atmospheric CO2 levels in the short term. One way to do that is carbon capture and storage. Here's Martin Blunt, an engineering physicist at Imperial College London, to explain the basics. The problem that the world is facing is that we emit huge amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere and that's affecting our climate. So... The concept behind carbon capture and storage is that rather than go into the atmosphere, the CO2 is captured. Now, where is it captured from? Principally, these are point sources where CO2 is generated. So burning fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas in power stations, 
heavy industry again often is fueled by fossil fuels so capturing it then and other industrial sites such as refineries and then there are other industrial processes that generate large amounts of co2 cement uh, manufacture for instance aluminium steelworks so you capture the co2 what that means is you separate out the carbon dioxide from other exhaust gases so you separate outside out the gas you compress it so that it is in terms of density in a liquid like state so that it doesn't occupy such a large volume and then you inject it deep underground and you inject it deep underground into porous rock this is rock that would naturally contain salty water and the co2 is stored within the pore spaces of the rock and the idea is that the co2 will remain there underground for many thousands of years the other possibility that people are looking at is to extract carbon dioxide directly from the air so to say well we rather than looking at point sources we have too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and to extract that from the air um, that thermodynamically is more challenging because the concentration of carbon dioxide in the air is actually lower than it is from the exhaust gas of, say, a power station. Okay, and, and, and just to get an idea of, of scale, so at the moment I know there are examples where this, this has been deployed. Um, is, is there a way of putting a figure on the, the amount of carbon right now which is being removed um, using this, this process and the number of large-scale facilities around the world? So carbon capture and storage, or at least the components of it, are not, funnily enough, a particularly new technology. So in the oil industry, natural gas, methane, is often produced alongside with CO2. And that CO2 can't be sold, so it has to be separated out. So the carbon capture process, the idea of separating out carbon dioxide, has been around since the 1930s, and it's routine in oil field operations. So there are hundreds of places around the world where carbon dioxide is, is separated out from another gas. Often that carbon dioxide is produced also with H2S that's highly toxic. And so rather than release it into the atmosphere, it has to be injected underground. Carbon dioxide can also be injected into oil fields because it mixes with the oil and improves recovery. So we have, as a worldwide, there have been dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of sites where carbon dioxide has been separated from the gas and injected underground. In the context of climate change, the first major project was the Sleipner project, where again, the carbon dioxide from a natural gas field was separated out and then injected into what is a saline aquifer. So that's rock underground uh, that originally contained salty water. And the Sleipner site has been injecting one million tonnes of carbon dioxide every year since 1996. So we've had 25 years of experience of certainly doing CCS um, to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm. At the moment, globally, it's difficult to come up with a precise amount that is stored, but it's several tens of millions of tonnes each year are injected in the subsurface um, in order to, to, to prevent that CO2 going into the atmosphere. However, to get a certain scale of the challenge, our current emissions of CO2 are of the order of 35 billion 
tons each year. And so for carbon capture and storage, it's not the only solution by any means, but to play a major role, we need to be storing of the order of 10 billion tons mm-hmm. every year. So this is a scale up from where we are at the moment of a factor of over 100. In case you're wondering, the Sleipner project is located off the Norwegian coast in the North Sea. I asked Blunt how the technology in these facilities can be improved in the coming years. Okay, conceptually, in all of these cases, we're looking at the same problem, which is you generate an exhaust gas that contains a high concentration of carbon dioxide and you need to separate it out. And the traditional way of doing this is what's is through what's known as amine capture. Essentially, the CO2 is captured by an amine solution, which is then heated up and the carbon dioxide is released again. In scientifically, in terms of scientific challenge, one of the key things is to design or invent a new carbon capture process that is much cheaper and less energy intensive. So current amine capture, okay, you've got to pay for the chemicals. You also have an energy penalty associated with heating up the solution to release the carbon dioxide. So there are lots of other methods that have been looked at um, to improve uh, the efficiency, to reduce the cost, and to improve the, the, essentially the, the, the thermodynamic, the energy penalty associated with the process. And are, are there any promising developments there in particular, would you say? It's not really my ex- area of expertise, but I do have colleagues who work on this, and there are a number of different techniques that you can use. One is the use of membranes. So you have essentially a membrane filtration. There are other methods such as, say, um, calcium looping, where you essentially loop a chemical reaction that captures carbon dioxide and releases it again. And then there one might say promising but more um, incremental type research, which is simply to improve the solvents that are used, to improve the, the, the amide solvents that are, that are used for carbon capture. Okay, and, and I suppose perhaps to move on then to, to your uh, closer to your area of expertise. So you said the idea is to then take this liquid um, form of CO2 and then pump it into, is it saline aquifers? Um, so what, what, what is the ideal geological situation, the, the ideal type of rock and location? Okay, so you collected the CO2, that's only half the problem because... You now need to store it somewhere. So beneath our feet in many parts of the world are vast volumes of porous rock. A classic example in a UK context is underneath the North Sea are several kilometres of porous rock, porous sandstone. The ideal formation in which to store the CO2 would be one that has what's called a high porosity, so Basically, it has a large fraction of the rock is pore space. So you've got a large, um, essentially, storage volume. High permeability, by which I mean that it's easy for the fluids to flow. So it's easy to inject the CO2. It's easy to displace um, the brine, the salty water that's originally present. The things you need to pay attention to, because obviously you want the carbon dioxide to remain underground for a very long time, is that carbon dioxide is less dense than water, so we'll tend to move up. 
So what you're looking for is a geological formation that also has what's called a cap rock. A cap rock is a region of low permeability rock, so it does not allow flow. So it doesn't allow this carbon dioxide to increase. The other thing you need to pay attention to is, of course, you have to inject the carbon dioxide at a high pressure. Flow goes from high to low pressure, so you need a higher pressure near the well. You don't want that pressure to be so high that it will fracture the rock because that will create um, basically a conduit potentially for flow. Um, it's also induced seismicity, so you create a little earthquake. If you do this offshore, this isn't necessarily a concern, but you do want to make sure that the carbon dioxide doesn't leak. So these are things that we do understand, and we understand reasonably well, because many people might know, that underneath the North Sea is also large amounts of oil and gas resources. So we have a huge amount of experience over many decades of drilling wells, producing fluids, injecting fluids, monitoring pressure, making sure that everything is done safely and securely. The idea of repurposing oil and gas fields for CO2 storage has its appeal. I mean, fossil fuel companies are sitting on decades of surveys and studies so these are well-known sites. But there are clear and legitimate concerns. Critics argue that carbon capture and storage is just a way of carrying on as business as usual, propping up the oil industry to continue exploiting natural resources. Or another way of looking at it is if it works too well, it might draw momentum away from the transition to renewables. Also, despite all the reassurances, industrial negligence does happen which can lead to leaks. And even if nothing too dramatic happens in the short term, how can we be sure that the CO2 won't gradually seep up to the surface over a longer time frame? To find out more about what happens to the CO2 once it's buried beneath the ground, I caught up with Juan Alcalde Martín, a geoscientist at the Geo3 BCN Research Lab in Barcelona. When you inject the CO2 into the reservoir, there are different uh, mechanisms that you want them to retain the CO2 into the subsurface, okay, which we call them trapping mechanisms. Um, and these trapping mechanisms, some of them act immediately after you inject the CO2, and some of them take a little bit longer to, to take place. And usually the security uh, of, the, of the storage operation in, increases with time. Um, together with these trapping mechanisms um, acting. So basically, the first thing that happens is that the CO2 is a buoyant uh, fluid and it floats over the, the, the brine, the, the saline water that's contained in the reservoir. So when you inject it, immediately the, the CO2 tends to, to flow up back to the surface, let's say. So the first thing that, um, that you want is that um, it gets trapped by this impermeable formation that caps the, your reservoir, and that's called a structure, structural trapping, okay, because it's, it's purely uh, a structure that is contained in the, the CO2, nothing else. If this structure was open, the CO2 will flow immediately back to the surface, okay? So it's, 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 the CO2 would still be in, in its free phase. The next process starts immediately, but it takes uh, some time to... to, to Act uh, measurably, uh, the CO2 starts to dissolve into the into the brine. Okay, because uh, CO2 is is uh, soluble in water, and we can see that in the 
soda that we drink or uh, okay and mm. um, so when it starts to to dissolve the water saturated with co2 um is more dense than the water unsaturated and therefore it starts to slowly very slowly start to, to sink by pure uh, density difference um, and that also takes the CO2 a little bit farther away from the surface, okay? Which is what you're trying to to do. You're trying to you're trying to m get it as far as possible to the to the atmosphere. When you inject the CO2, you, you're trying to make the CO2 to flow through as much rock space as possible, because while the CO2 flows, a portion of it gets trapped uh, behind. And the 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 plume okay gets trapped in the little pore space and in the little throat that connect the pore space and it's only a, a, a small portion of it it's it's a residual portion of the of the co2 that's flowing but if you manage to make your plume to travel through the reservoir uh, for sometimes tens or hundreds of kilometers there's a massive amount of CO2 that you can trap with this uh, mechanism. And um, the amount that you can trap, it depends on the, the rock type. It depends on the uh, uh, saturation CO2, but it can go from, uh, I think, 14% to up to almost 90% of the CO2 can get trapped by this uh, residual trapping mechanism. And that CO2 that gets uh, trapped in the pores can also get uh, dissolved into the water. So... Uh, the the trapping mechanisms add up to each other okay so they they uh, adapt to um, to increase their safety and finally uh, with time and this this uh, takes some times of, of years uh, to start acting this the final uh, mechanism um, the the co2 dissolve in the water it starts to precipitate and it starts to form new minerals New carbonate minerals. It of course depends on the um, mineralogy of the of the rock formation, but uh, generally um, uh, it starts to precipitate over a few decades. The, the whole process can take many years. But once it precipitates, the CO2 is no longer able to to flow back to the surface because it, it's a, it's it becomes the rock uh, of the reservoir. Right now, perhaps the biggest limiting factor for scaling up CCS is the cost and the lack of clarity over who should be paying for the technology. In the short term, it might seem fair that fossil fuel companies should pick up the bill. But if there's no global tax on a company's carbon emissions, then why would they bother paying large amounts to offset them? I asked Alcalde if there are any promising developments that could help to bring down the costs of CCS. There's one strategy that, that I think um, it's becoming more and more popular, and, and that is the, uh, the strategy of using hubs and clusters. Okay, so it's joining forces. Uh, basically, you, uh, you identify not just one single uh, source of CO2, um, but a hub of of um, of emissions. And if you make a smart grid for, for example, capture and and transport, um, by economies of scale, basically you can you can reduce cost uh, massively. Mm -hmm. And if you have a 
one storage site that can actually receive flow from different sources because it's good uh, reservoir and it, you you can inject um, to, uh, in high rates and so on. You can you can also uh, reduce the cost by having only one or only one site, only one injection facility or uh, one area. So that strategy of finding multiple sources and and so on that that can also um, that can actually unlock uh, CCS in 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 many areas. And that that's actually a strategy that's taking place in the UK with the Acorn project, in uh, ne- the Netherlands with the Orthos uh, CCUS project, and in Norway um, with a, with the Northern Lights. So we are seeing this more and more. And I think this could actually uh, take place in other countries where, where there are less hydrocarbon resources because hydrocarbon in the end is, is still driving the development of CCS. And we need to get, get away from that because in countries such as mine, for example, in Spain, where we don't have uh, hydrocarbon resources, but we do have decarbonization needs, uh, we, we need to find ways of uh, developing things like CCS in order to get rid of those emissions. From the conversations I've had across this two-part series, it's clear to me that physicists are directly contributing to tackling the climate crisis. Dan Kamen, who you heard from earlier in this episode, has a background in physics, but has worked with several governments, the World Bank, and regularly contributes to the international media alongside his academic research career. I asked him why he thinks physicists are well-placed to make real-world impacts. Well, I think there's two parts of it. One is that there is, is this tradition of physicists uh, serving in, in public service. So at government level as science advisors, and I certainly followed a number of, of really remarkable individuals who paved that path. The other piece, though, is that while physics strives for simplicity, it embraces complexity. Um, I trained in chaos and solid state theory before getting into um, energy environmental issues. And the hallmark of the challenges that we face now from warming and fires and the methane that is very shortly to be released from peat um, in, in the northern latitudes in Siberia and elsewhere, um, dealing with the huge damage we've already done to the oceans. All of these are, are, com- are really uh, complexity questions. How do you model them at a sufficient um, level of detail? How do you develop solutions that don't have unwanted side effects? That's a process that um, the analytics of physics really sets you up well for. And of course, the straightforward side of the basis of solar power, of nuclear energy, um, the fluid dynamics of wind power allow you to be, you know, kind of a an accurate arbiter of what is the ability and what are the limitations of different technologies. I think all of that is something that physics brings to bear. And as we see more and more of these complex linkages, the need to think about smart energy systems, but also smart political systems, uh, understanding that we have to think not only about the energy generation side, but also about the human rights, the environmental damages of mining rare earths and things. Those are really complex systems at their core. And 
Physicists, I think, well, are well set up to play in that. You have to be willing to embrace the fact that a great deal of what you do isn't about the physics. It's really <laughs> about the, the networks. And by that, I mean the power networks, but really the political, the social mm -hmm. networks. And that's a place where physicists have a great deal to learn, but they can contribute a huge amount. I mean, yeah, I guess that, that's one thing. You get lots of different kinds of scientists, you know, people from all personalities and backgrounds. And some people love to just focus on the scientific problems and then the decision, that they're happy for the decisions to be taken by politicians. But I mean, you seem like somebody who, who really does think about how your research can have real world impact um, as well as just be a, a good bit of science. Is there something when you're taking on a new scientific research project, you know, what are the things you do to make sure that you know this, is, this can have some real impact further down the line? Well, we do think hard about that kind of impact and outcome of work. And so whether it's a piece of lab work, I was just working with a team on transparent solar cells, which is a really interesting materials question. But the idea that we could have transparent thin film solar, so you apply it to the outside of windows and then um, power buildings directly from from nicely transparent windows. It's a great science question, but it immediately asks the question of, will this only be a technology that we employ for the swankiest, newest buildings, the glass office buildings in London or San Francisco or Copenhagen? Or can we think immediately about how can we direct the research for high reliability, low cost, transparent solar. So it can be done on homes of low income people um, from the beginning. So it's that justice conversation that's one that physicists need a massive amount of humility because it's not something which is built into the physics directly. It requires you to think about the system side of the story. And I, I firmly believe that we will not solve the climate problem if we don't also solve the justice problem, the racial and social justice. And that's an area where physicists are woefully underprepared um, to be big players. And so teams working with people at non-governmental groups, people working in the humanities, um, that's a really elaborate conversation. It's one that physicists should embrace because it's all about complexity, but it's certainly one where humility and learning from really broad coalitions that have thought about social, racial, environmental ethics for a long time. Justice writ large is, I think, the big opportunity for physicists to up their game to be key players in that, in that dialogue. Well, thanks for joining today. And if you haven't already heard last week's episode about climate modelling and global health, then please check that out too. You can read more about physicists involved in climate research in a feature article I wrote for the October issue of Physics World. That's got the headline, Getting Physical with the Climate Crisis, and it's available now on the Physics World website. Finally, you might also want to sign up to Environmental Research 2021. It's a free-to-attend virtual event running from the 15th to the 19th of November, hosted by IOP Publishing, which also publishes Physics World. It'll be one of the first scientific conferences after COP26, and the programme covers climate science, energy, infrastructure and sustainability, environmental and global health, and ecology and biodiversity. Find out more about that event at the podcast section on the Physics World website. 
And of course, this podcast will be back to business as usual next week, hosted by the Physics World team. Physics World.